We're in the final countdown to Election Day. A record-breaking number of Americans have already cast their ballots, but the outcome remains uncertain. In that context, what should the climate and energy world be looking out for? We discuss what the top action items will be under a Joe Biden versus Donald Trump presidency. Then, in the second half of the show, we zero in on the ongoing health and environmental crisis in Flint, Michigan. Presidential politics are dominating the news cycle in the run-up to the election while communities like Flint are struggling to get the attention and action that they need. We speak to grassroots leader Michelle Mabson about what her community wants to see from political leadership. Welcome to Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm Julia Piper, a contributing editor at Green Tech Media and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. And this is the fourth episode in our Relief Rescue Rebuild series supported by Third Way, a center-left think tank based in Washington, D.C. For our discussion today, I am joined by a panel of experts, including my regular Democratic co-host, Brandon Hurlbutt. He's the former chief of staff at the Department of Energy, a partner at the consulting firm Boundary Stone Partners, and an advisor on not one but two different clean energy investment funds. Brandon, I understand you want to give a shout out for a big event you have coming up. Oh, yes. Clean energy for Biden on Thursday, our big celebration and final get out the vote uh, rally. It's Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern. We have Governors Newsom, Whitmer, Inslee, Lujan participating. Speaker Pelosi is participating. And breaking news, I'll be doing a fireside chat uh, with my old Obama friend, John Favreau from Pod Save America. Um, so please go to Clean Energy for Biden. Uh, dot com and sign up and join us on Thursday. It's going to be an amazing event. All right. Get the plug in there. All right. We also have Shane Skelton on the line, a Republican who has a much shorter bio compared to Brandon's. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Sorry, Shane. I, I told you last week I had I had bio envy. And now after all these clean energy for Biden pitches, Brandon's going to be leading a QVC show before long, too. I'm, my, my, my resume by comparison is getting dwarfed. <laughs> Oh, no. Well, 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 you've got a great background. Shane, I know you have many years working on Capitol Hill. You uh, also worked as a clean energy advisor to former Representative Paul Ryan, and you're currently a partner at the public policy consulting firm S2C Pacific. So don't worry, Shane, nothing to be embarrassed about there. <laughs> <laughs> so as I mentioned, this is the fourth episode in our Relief Rescue Rebuild series supported by Third Way. And speaking of Third Way, we are joined in this episode by Josh Freed, who is the founder and leader of Third Way's climate and energy program. Josh promotes policies that use every tool possible to combat climate change, from renewables and energy storage to advanced nuclear and carbon capture. And I know you're closely watching the political scene, Josh. You're tracking the news, conducting your own research at Third Way. So just give us a second here to, to give us your temperature read. How are you feeling with less than a week until Election Day? I mean, look, I think like everyone else who went through the 2016 election cycle as a Democrat, we're uh, biting nails and doing everything we can uh, on hours and off hours to uh, get uh, former Vice President Biden over the finish line. Um, unfortunately, I don't have anything as exciting to pitch as Brandon right now, which is a fantastic event. And, and Brandon, I'll certainly be joining as well. But, uh, you know, I think if if I was either campaign right now, I'd much rather be in uh, former Vice President Biden's place than in uh, Donald Trump's. And particularly given that he's the incumbent president, that's saying a lot. 
Well, we are going to run through some scenarios on this podcast because we do know that I think it's up to 60 million or so Americans have voted at the time of our recording, perhaps even more than that now. And it is skewing younger and largely Democratic. But there's a lot of Republicans that are expected to show up at the polls uh, in the coming days and on Election Day. So this is still, you know, a, a toss up. There's some tight races in those swing states where the Electoral College really matters. So in this episode, we're going to have each of you guys, the experts here, walk through what your number one issue or trend or action is under each of these scenarios. And we'll start with a Joe Biden presidency since he is leading right now. So there's lots we've discussed. He's got, you know, a, a very intense platform of, of climate policies. But if you guys had to pull out one thing that you're going to be pushing for, watching for, hoping to see action on when he takes office, what would that be? And, and Josh, let's start with you. Yeah, I think for me, the first thing I'll be watching for even before uh, uh, in this scenario, uh, Vice President Biden takes the oath of office to become president is uh, personnel. Um, personnel is policy in Washington. It's it's a cliche, but it's also a truism that, you know, Brandon experienced firsthand and can talk more about. Um, but, you know, the, the vice president has laid out a very, very ambitious climate agenda. And a key question is, who is he going to name at the Department of Energy? Uh, is he going to name a climate czar? Uh, what's that person's relationships like on Capitol Hill and in the business community? And as importantly, within both the climate movement and uh, the labor union movement uh, to really make sure that the ideas that he's talked about uh, can be acted upon and acted upon as quickly as we all know uh, needs to happen. I want to follow up on that because there were some reports around this new role that a Biden administration would create around a climate cabinet position um, that's actually putting a role in the White House that would focus on climate change. We actually talked to John Podesta about this in a previous episode, and he made the case that that's really where the action could happen by having a person right there in the Oval Office. And then some names, I believe, that were touted were John Podesta, um, John Kerry, and some of the older guard that I think at least the younger climate activists maybe don't know as well or would just want to see someone more progressive or someone more diverse in there josh and brandon since you're more in tune with the democratic side and maybe brandon i'll go to you first do you have any insight on that cabinet position and who might be the picks no uh we are focused 100 percent on winning uh and running through the tape on november 4th uh and then we'll have plenty of time for the parlor games of who's going to have what job in the administration but i agree wholeheartedly with josh personnel as policy and those decisions will really matter. Well, those parlor games, if you want to call them that, have already begun because personnel is, like you said, so important. There's already some names for the Environmental Protection Agency being tossed around. People like Carol Browner, who was on Biden's Climate Advisory Council and previously served as EPA Administrator under Bill Clinton. Then there are more environmental justice-oriented uh, names being floated around with support from groups like the Sunrise Movement. That includes people like Mustafa Santiago Ali, who we've had on the podcast before, who is a, an activist who worked at the EPA for a long time before stepping down in 2017. Or there's Heather McTeer Tony, a former Southeast Regional Administrator under Obama, who now leads the nonprofit Moms clean air force. So just some names there, and I'm sure there'll be many more that come up. But uh, I think with polling the way it is, I think minds are already turning in that direction. But I, I take your point that there's an election still to take place. 
So Brandon, turning to you again, what will be your top item then for a Biden administration? What will be the thing on your list that you'd want to see happen first? I think the biggest trend I see is that climate is no longer just an environmental policy that um, they'll get to if they can. Um, I think the trend is that climate is now interwoven with uh, economic recovery. It's the central tenet in uh, Biden's economic recovery plan. It is central to healthcare uh, with public health and the coronavirus. Air quality uh, has big impacts on that. Uh, it's central to this national conversation we're having about racial injustice uh, and systemic uh, racism uh, and wealth inequality. Uh, you know, they see clean energy jobs as a way to address that. Um, so what I think I hope to see in the Biden administration is that climate change will be a part of housing policy, economic policy, healthcare policy, and not just um, in the bucket of environmental policy alone. Do you have an idea of how they could act on that first? Do you think that would express itself formally through like an executive order right off the bat? Or what would be like a tool he could employ that would make sure that gets inserted back in the process or not even back in, but the way you described inserted throughout the process? I think if there is a climate council in the White House, um, that it has the equivalency of a national security council and national economic council, uh, it would be a good structure to do something like that, uh, where you're in constant engagement with the entire cabinet and getting climate into each of those, um, you know, policies. Um, I think out of the gate, um, there's going to be a, a big economic recovery package uh, to deal with um, the, you know, depression-like conditions that we're seeing and the public health crisis that we're having. And I expect that clean energy would have a major part of that as, as Vice President Biden has put forward in his Build Back Better plan that we've talked about on the show. And who do you think should lead that climate cabinet? <laughs> you, how about you, Julia? I'll put you in charge. You and Josh. <laughs> Excellent. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah. We need to wait until November 4th and run through the tape and see, uh, see what happens after that. <laughs> well, I know. I'm just doing my job to tee it up. Come on. Everyone's hungry for more info. I think one, one thing, though, that Brandon said that's really, really important is how much the landscape has transformed over the last four years, and particularly the last two, on how climate policy is even considered. And he's absolutely right that it it is now woven into virtually every component of domestic and foreign policy that a Biden administration would consider. And that it's not only an issue that is being seen as driven by progressives, that they have to drag uh, elected officials and voters more on the center left to sort of grudgingly accept. This is just uh, taken for granted across every component of the Democratic Party now and expected. And it's going to look uh, like, you know, how does climate policy uh, get woven into an infrastructure package in terms of not only what's built, but there's also going to be an assessment of what are the climate implications of what we build? How do we measure it? What are the longer term ramifications of that? And it's something that um, was tried both by Democrats when we controlled the Hill uh, the last time and also from the Obama administration with varying degrees of success. But there wasn't the same universal support for that kind of consideration that we have now. So the baseline of, of what actions are expected is just dramatically different than uh, we've seen before. 
Shane, let's bring your voice in. What what would you be looking for uh, in, a, in a Biden administration? What I'm most interested to see in a Biden administration, if it comes to be, is what comes first and how do they do this practically? So, for example, uh, Brandon mentioned Build Back Better. Would you approach Build Back Better you know, first and, and talk about clean energy and sustainable buildings, building codes, things like that, um, investing in you know carbon neutral technologies? Or would it be more of a, sleep, a sweeping climate bill that would have standards, whether that's a clean energy standard bill, whether that's a cap and trade bill, whether that's you know some other type of climate regula- uh, uh, authorization to, to regulate um, emissions in new ways? Or would it be one big package where they tie all that together? And then secondarily, um, is you know you get you get into the White House, do you start pushing EPA to pursue regulations to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, or do you try a legislative approach first? Uh, obviously, you know what they do or don't do with the filibuster will will be a big part of that. Um, and then, will there be a carbon border adjustment tax, which frankly, you know, has been talked about a little bit in Republican circles for years, but never you know the ones who are controlling the government. That seems like something that wouldn't be liberal or conservative, but just sort of sensible trade policy. So so my questions are, how fast do they do this? How do they do it? Uh, how intertwined is it? And again, a lot of this leans on, on is there a filibuster? Because if there is, we know that the, the lawmaking process is going to take quite a while, and it's not going to give a Biden administration everything that it wants. Um, a regulatory process, obviously much simpler in that regard, but, but could be tied up in the courts. So, you know, without beating the same drum here, I'm really interested in the procedurals behind how a Biden administration would attack their climate plan. Well, yeah, you mentioned a bunch of things, as you noted, that are would rely on Congress taking action. So, I mean, we talk a lot about the politics on this show. So, like, meshing these two worlds of the how with what we know about the politics of the day, Shane, keeping it with you, what do you think is the most logical first thing that a Biden administration would do? If I were, you know, if I were running a Biden administration, or at least in a key position to determine climate policy, I would take a dual approach. I'd say, look, let's find the most stringent regulatory regime that we can, that we think will be held up by the courts, or at least has a chance of being held up by the courts. And let's start that on day one, because regulations just through the Administrative Procedures Act and and other sort of guideposts take a while. And then I would go to Congress Say, look, here's what I'm going to do. I don't think this is the most market-friendly way to do it. I don't even think it's the most productive way to do it. But I don't really have a choice because I don't have the authority to do something that makes more sense. So you've got, you know, whatever this is, 320 days or however long that that process takes to figure out a solution that works better for the economy, that works better for your states, that works better for your constituents. And I'd run it on a dual track in hopes of by the end of year one or at least, you know, midway through year two, we'd have a climate policy that could be durable, that could be supported by Congress uh, because the alternative might be a little too frightening. Well, we should note that uh, the Senate very much up for grabs. Mitch McConnell seems to be acknowledging that they might lose the Republicans because, you know, he was pointing to the strength of the Supreme Court confirmation of Justice Amy Coney Barrett and saying that that will last a long time, that majorities come and go. So it seems as though Republicans are accepting that they might lose the majority. Uh, so it's interesting to see how this could play out. I guess, Brandon or, or Josh, any other thoughts on what Shane just said there? Josh? Yeah, I, I think one thing um that I would think about is less one sweeping climate policy uh, in a uh, Biden administration and Democratic controlled Congress than virtually every policy, including climate components in it. And with the really disastrous response that the federal government has had to COVID-19 and in many ways, a great depression like economic circumstances, 
we're going to have to see an infrastructure and stimulus package move very quickly off the bat. That's going to have a real opportunity for an enormous amount of uh, climate and clean energy related funding in it. And I, I hope and think that's likely to be one of the first things to see. And then you'll see other steps take afterwards to uh, reinforce that and make it enduring. I think the one other thing is to your point about the uh, swearing in now of uh, Amy Coney Barrett as a justice on the Supreme Court. Um, I think we face a really challenging landscape uh, given how uh, extremist the majority on the Supreme Court is and the likelihood that not only uh, are the thresholds of overturning uh, you know, administrative action uh, much lower now, They're, they seem much more willing to legislate from the bench than they have in a long time. But we may be entering a period of activist Supreme Court that we haven't seen since uh, the early part of the New Deal. And so it means that the action of Congress is going to become much more important because the Supreme Court may very well just decide to try to cut the knees out of anything that the administration does on its own. Let's take another moment on that. Um, Charles Hernick, who is with the uh, organization Citizens for Responsible Energy Solutions, wrote this week in Real Clear Energy that Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation could actually be good for climate action because it does put that pressure back on Congress, back on state legislatures to actually pass something meaningful. I think the challenge there is that we all know the politics of the day. It does not seem like that is happening, <laughs> that even under dire circumstances, you know, lawmakers are not passing bills like that. Meanwhile, there are plenty of other um, rules and, and lawsuits that will come up that could fall in a way that hurts climate action with such a conservative leaning court. And we should note that uh, Amy Coney Barrett in her confirmation hearings refused to acknowledge the science on climate change. She just she just said that it's a very contentious matter of public debate and we don't know how exactly she'll rule on things. But, you know, not acknowledging the science was um, maybe indicative of where she would go. So um, maybe Shane, any thoughts for from you on on what uh, Amy Coney Barrett uh, going to the Supreme yeah, Court? Means? I don't know what her you know specific uh, vote would mean, but I know that you know when you start to look at the numbers, I think what we have is a far more textualist court. So I agree with Josh completely that administrative action that can't be you know tied closely to statutory text is probably not going to be as likely to survive as it would have in the past. I think um, Chevron deference is probably uh, at risk. And what that means is, is that was a ruling uh, for our audience. Uh, I don't remember the year, but that was a ruling a while back that basically said when an agency action runs into an ambiguous statute, the agency's interpretation of the statute will be given deference. So if you, if you push regulations that aren't, you know, prohibited by the statute, but it's not clear whether they're authorized, the court's going to lean on the side of, of favoring the administrative's action, administration's action. I think that probably um, is at risk. I think this court will probably you know, force Congress to write their intentions and pass those laws, which longer term, I think would be great for, for durable policy because well-written laws are always better than poorly written laws. But I agree that shorter term, because Congress is such um, a slow-moving body and because there's not a lot of bipartisanship right now. It would be very difficult to to pass. A good example is there is no statute that explicitly authorizes uh, regulation of, of greenhouse gases, but the court has said that the Clean Air Act does provide that authority in Massachusetts for CPA. Now, what everyone thinks about that, um, it doesn't say it in the law, and I could see this court treating it differently as the previous court. Of course, I hope that's not the case. 
Uh, I hope that we're able to, to bring greenhouse gas emissions under control quickly. But I do think that's going to be the big shift. Did Congress explicitly state in any given law exactly what their intentions are? And did the administration carry those out? If not, I think it's going to have a harder time with this court. And I'll just note that there are some other cases that will perhaps affect the energy and climate space. I was just reading up on this and Ford, for instance, has a product liability case right now. And the uh, experts in this field are saying something like that and the precedent set in that case could affect whether oil companies have liability in future. So there's definitely going to be a foundational shift there on how, you know, perhaps the court rules on these issues and what they mean as they filter through future cases. Any final thoughts on this, Brandon? It was crushing. Um, I do not think of my, I'm certainly not young anymore, but I don't think of myself as old. I'll be uh, boxing this evening. And Amy Coney Barrett- I've seen your moves. You still got it. You still got it. (laughs) Amy Coney Barrett will likely be on the court for the rest of my life. She will probably outlive me on the court. Uh, And this is a reflection of a broken democracy that is not working because she was, we have three justices that were put on the court by a president that lost the popular vote by about 3 million votes. She was confirmed by a Senate where Democrats represent 14 more million people than Republicans. This is the tyranny of the minority in this country. And we are on the verge of it really being um, a problem. And I think if Biden wins, that is one of the first things we have to do is if we're going to have action on climate, we have to fix our democracy. We have to restore voting rights. Uh, we We have to get rid of voter suppression and these type of things that have led to uh, this minority view being able to have to be uh, prevail upon the majority in this country. Do you think that also means getting rid of the Electoral College? I would. Yeah, I would be open to that. I mean, I think the Republicans are going to totally change on this when Texas goes blue, maybe next week, certainly in four years uh, and in the entire Sun Belt goes Democratic and it, uh, there's a locked in Democratic majority in the Electoral College. Uh, that's going to be a very interesting discussion. Yeah. And we should note that um, uh, candidate Joe Biden has said he would set up a commission to study adding additional justices to the Supreme Court. He has not said he necessarily favors that, but wants to get the scholars together to look at what that would look like. Final thought, Josh, before we turn to a Trump administration and the outlook there. Yeah, I, I think Brandon's point can't be overlooked that we have a system right now that uh, favors a minority uh, party and a minority of voters whose views are really radically out of step with the majority of the country. And uh, that's one of the first things that's going to have to change. And I would expect to the question earlier about what moves first, perhaps the only thing that moves either before climate and economic stimulus or simultaneously with that is uh, a combination of a John Lewis civil uh, voting rights and civil rights bill. Because, uh, I mean, we've just seen over the last several weeks and months way far too many examples of how uh, the Republican Party seem to decide that the only way that they can win elections is to prevent particularly brown and black voters from having a chance to get to the polls. And uh, our democracy can't function uh, and and, uh, continue to succeed uh, under those circumstances. Yeah, I don't. I just want to chime in here as the as the lone Republican. I don't I don't quite understand uh, this. and And I tend to agree with Josh as well. 
I don't understand the short-term fixation on limiting the vote. You know, what I would want to do is come up with a program um, and express my ideology in a way that encourages more people to vote for me rather than encouraging less people to vote uh, overall. And so it's my hope that we can figure this out. I remember waiting in long voting lines uh, when I first moved to Los Angeles, which I'd never seen before because um, in Madison, Wisconsin, it was it was really easy to vote. So I don't understand the short-term fixation with uh, controlling the ballot box. I'm much more interested in building a large majority that will continue to win, uh, you know, when everyone is able to vote and, and does vote. Well, let's shift gears a little bit and imagine what a continuation of the Trump administration would look like, because there is still very much a chance that uh, that could happen. Uh, we don't even know if we'll know the election outcome on Election Day. Uh, so. Let's just work through that. what that would mean for climate and energy specifically. And we'll go in the same order. Josh, what would you be looking at, number one, to keep action happening on climate if President Trump wins again? Yeah, look, I, I think what we've learned over the last four years is that uh, whenever we think uh, Donald Trump has hit rock bottom and whenever we think the limits of our and his imagination have been stretched, uh, we've been proven wrong. And so the first thing I'd look for is how quickly he tries to fire uh, FBI Director Chris Wray, uh, whether Attorney General Barr is moved out, Gina Haspel at CIA, and Mark Esper at the Department of Defense. Uh, not necessarily because of the global and national security concerns, but because he's made very clear, and we've seen in some states efforts to dramatically curtail free speech and prosecute political opponents. And climate action has become a top tier issue because we've had a mass movement and organizing and pressure put on politicians across both parties to act on climate. And I, I'm very, very concerned that a second Trump term would not only spell the end of federal climate action, but it would spell the end of a real competitive democracy and our ability uh, to petition our government and to organize and speak out against uh, actions that we oppose. And so I'd be looking for uh, that worst case scenario and see, uh, frankly, how quickly it may happen. Quite a grim picture we have there. Um, is there anything you would see, Josh, that could keep, you know, movement, you know, happening on climate in the private sector, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, look, I think we've seen uh, the, the private sector, particularly from companies that uh, are competing in a global marketplace, is moving towards clean and moving towards climate action. Um, the European Green Deal, uh, China's commitment to uh, getting to carbon neutral by 2060, Japan's announcement of getting to net uh, zero by 2050, makes it clear that regardless of what the United States does, the rest of the world is going to go to net zero. And so companies are going to continue to move in that direction. And we saw the announcement and, and advertisement that everyone should check out if they haven't seen uh, for the new electric Hummer, uh, which is narrated by LeBron James. It just shows you uh, where uh, American companies know the market is headed. That's going to continue. Uh, I think you'll see a lot of action at the state level, including you know on the EV side, uh, California and New Jersey have both made clear that by 2035, the uh, cars that we drive are going to be electric. And those kinds of actions, clean energy standards, are exciting and necessary, but not having a federal government 
creating a clear, predictable national standard uh, really does create chaos uh, in the marketplace and creates a continued level of uncertainty and, frankly, inability for American companies to compete internationally, that's going to be really problematic. And I'll give a plug for the series that we did with Third Way earlier in the year called Path to Zero and how we looked at the various ways to get to net zero emissions by 2050. Uh, Brandon brought on his former boss, uh, Stephen Chu, former secretary of the Department of Energy, and we talked about the tools in the toolkit. So uh, plug for our previous series there. Uh, Brandon, what about you? What would you be looking for under a Trump administration? I agree with Josh on the grim picture. It's a nightmare scenario. Um, it keeps me up at night. Uh, but we see incredible technology development on the investment side. That would not stop for us. We would continue to invest. Uh, this technology is happening uh, with or without the federal government. It just depends on how fast. I would also expect to see all hands on deck in the states and local uh, municipalities. Uh, we've already seen what the states have done the last four years, incredible work in California, New York, uh, Massachusetts, many states going to 100% clean energy. Uh, many states now thinking about zero emission vehicle mandates, uh, like here in California with Governor Newsom, uh, and also happening in New Jersey uh, as well. Uh, so I would expect that to really, really accelerate. It's not ideal, but there would still be uh, progress at the, at the local level. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, this just comes from conversations I had with three different California lawmakers. I think implementing things like the EV executive order to phase out new fossil fuel vehicles in California by 2035 will have some implementation issues. The legislature here doesn't seem to have the appetite for it. They are very concerned about um, energy justice issues and who gets access to these vehicles. It's a problem that has not been totally fixed yet in the state. So that's just hearing from some California local leaders. Uh, so much more to be done on implementing that, but I take your point that that's where the leadership well, will Julie, come from. Well, Julie, what do you think clean energy for Biden's going to do after the election? That's, <laughs> you know, come on. We've got, you know, stuff for us to do. <laughs> Excellent. I, I think the, the one other point with that is that this is yet another example, though, of, uh, you know, government tends to follow what happens in the private sector, not uh, set the, uh, the, the path. And um, as, you know, we've looked at, to Brandon's point, both where the investment is and also where the technology is, like, we may wake up in 2030 and find that the expectation of a 2035 uh, electric or clean vehicle mandate being onerous, having just been, you know, completely uh, non-issue uh, because batteries are getting so cheap. These cars and light duty trucks may be as competitive or cheaper than gas powered vehicles within the next five years. And so it may just happen. Also, I just want to you know flag as well that in the last presidential debate, when Biden said we're transitioning from oil and, you know, he was talking about the subsidies, but also making the broader you know, point, uh, the coverage of that was really interesting. Anybody that said, oh, this is a gaffe or a stumble, it was quickly like there was a wave of backlash against that. And you had people, Republicans, um, you know, talking on major news shows like uh, you know, this week and meet the press saying there are more renewable energy jobs in Texas than oil and gas jobs. And uh, I thought just the coverage of that was definitely an inflection point on this issue. I did not know that Republicans talked about that after. That's interesting. Matthew Dowd. 
I guess just to finish this thread, Brandon, since we don't talk much about your clean tech investment world, when you think about like the opportunities there, you said these technologies are moving forward. Is there something that's super exciting to you right now? Even with a Republican majority on FERC, uh, the Order 2222, deuces wild, or four by two for you energy nerds, um, you know, <laughs> is allowing access for distributed energy resources to these wholesale markets. And so that is going to enable many of these third-party aggregators to aggregate those many you know, distributed energy assets that are out there, solar on roofs, uh, batteries in homes, EV charging, uh, and function as uh, demand response, um, uh, function as you know, assets to the grid. Um, and so that's even happening you know, with a Republican FERC and, and uh, really excited about, uh, uh, about those developments. Yeah, Commissioner uh, Neil Chatterjee supported that decision at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And yeah, it'd be interesting to look into that more in a future episode. But sticking with the politics for now, Shane, what about you? What will be uh, you know the areas of action under a Trump administration uh, going forward? And focusing on action here, not the inaction. Yeah, yeah. So we're here. I want to quickly close up on Brandon's thought. It's not just Order 2222, but also uh, Chairman Chatterjee has, has uh, begun and furthered the process of integrating a carbon price into wholesale markets. Another thing I think people would not have respect, uh, expected of a Republican um, FERC. So just a reminder for our listeners that Chairman Chatterjee is a longtime McConnell aide. Uh, my only point there is that things aren't always you know, as, as, as dire, I think, as, as some folks on Twitter uh, seem to think with Republicans in control. On Trump and what his administration would do, I think uh, a Trump re-election is going to, you know, look if it happens similar to the last four years. I think where you're going to get action is not from standards like you might under a Biden administration, but HFCs, I think, will move quickly. We've talked about that a lot on this show. There is a bill in the House and the Senate that does have majority support in both bodies. Um, Hydrofluorocarbons, right? The short-lived air pollutants that we yep, talked about? Exactly. I think that's the kind of thing that could get done even in the lame duck uh, if Trump were to win re-election because no one's holding out hope for, you know, what could... What could look different. And just to clarify on that, do you mean ratifying the Montreal Protocol or do you mean a separate bill? No, I, I don't mean ratifying the Montreal Protocol. There's So in the, if the Montreal Protocol were ratified, that has to be, you know, as, as our listeners probably know, submitted to the Senate by the White House and, and received two-thirds vote. However, even then, you need uh, legislative authority to, to uh, do this phase down. And so this would sort of skip that part of the process. The legislative authority would be in place and we could act with or without the Montreal Protocol, meaning that any future president or this president could submit the treaty for ratification. It could be ratified, but we wouldn't have any obligation left. So we'd be meeting our obligation under the treaty, whether or not it was ever ratified. Um, I could also see Trump continuing to try to advance uh, you know, what I would call, I guess, climate-friendly resources being um, small modular nuclear reactors um, and carbon capture and sequestration. I know not the the crown jewels of the climate movement, but certainly technologies that would help reduce carbon emissions uh, and be moved overseas. I think that's sort of the only policy that that we've seen from a Trump administration that could help reduce carbon emissions, at least in the power sector. And then just looking at what a stimulus would be, because a stimulus, regardless of who's present, is going to have to be bipartisan in a certain way. It's going to have to spend a lot of money. It's going to have to try to get our economy back on its feet. So is there room in there for EV charging uh, funding, uh, tax credits, um, you know, any, any types of policies that, that wouldn't be viewed by a President Trump as climate policy, but rather uh, industrial mobilization? Does it have to be bipartisan, Shane? I mean, with reconciliation, don't you think um, 
with the Senate, you know, majority for the Democrats, they would just pass it regardless. Uh, it, it, well, if there's a President Trump, I'm going to presume there's not a Senate majority for the Democrats. Um, if there's a President okay, Biden, I'm yeah, going to assume yeah. there's a strong Senate majority for the Democrats. But at least the way I'm viewing the race is that the states that Democrats would win to take the majority of the Senate would also be paired with Trump losing those states. I, I don't see many scenarios where Trump wins re-election and Democrats take the Senate. But I, if I'm wrong there, I'd love to learn about that. No, no, you're right. I was I was quickly deleted the idea of Donald Trump winning re-election from my brain. And so, so as, as is your I want, already right? moved on to, back to the you know hopeful world that I'm trying to live in. <laughs> You know, I, I think one one point before we get back to Brandon's hopeful world, uh, which I'd also like to be living in hopefully next week. Um, you know, as as one of the groups on the the left that supports both carbon capture, uh, direct air capture, and advanced nuclear, one of the challenges, even if uh, we're able to continue support for programs uh, that have continued to get funding and continue to grow over the last four years, most of which. Uh, were started or expanded under President Obama uh, and and uh, are continuations of programs that have been long lasting, is that we're getting closer to a point where they need some sort of demand pull from a clear signal that there's going to be climate policy. And you can get one or two demonstration projects funded and built. You can get maybe a couple more. But what we keep hearing from developers, from investors, and from potential overseas customers is they want to see nth of a kind. And it's hard to get the kind of funding and financing and certainty for an nth of a kind advanced nuclear reactor or carbon capture system if there isn't either an explicit or implicit price on carbon national clean energy standard. So, uh, you know, I have a deep concern that even for these programs that have been able to stay in existence under President Trump, the uh, momentum for them uh, could really dissipate and we could see those lag behind uh, if there isn't a broader set of policies that make them necessary domestically. Well, we'll see what kind of world we're living in a week from a publication date. At least I hope we know by then, but we'll have to see. Of course, it's not just the presidential race that is up for grabs here. There's a tight race in the Senate. Lots of races in the House that are relevant. E&E News has identified 37 House races, 17 Republican, 20 Democratic, where issues such as climate change denial, energy jobs, and toxic cleanups could become major points of contention for incumbents and their challengers. Then there are ballot initiatives. In Nevada, voters will decide whether or not utilities uh, will have to acquire 50% of their electricity from renewable resources by 2030. That's question six. There's a long history there of solar battles that led to that ballot initiative. And then in New Mexico, Constitutional Amendment 1 would make the Public Regulation Commission a three-member appointed commission rather than an elected commission. So that's an interesting one that could change the dynamics of energy regulation in that state. So lots to look at, lots to follow, and we will all be, I'm sure, glued to our televisions to see what the results look like. Thank you all for weighing in, Josh, Brandon, and Shane. And with that, let's shift gears and turn to an issue that is affecting far too many Americans still today, and that is lead exposure and poisoning, an issue that advocates say is also on the ballot. 
So I'm joined now by Michelle Mabson. She is the Chief Advocacy Officer and Environmental Scientist at Black Millennials for Flint. She's also a staff scientist at Earth Justice. Michelle, thank you for coming on. This is a historic time, a crazy time, and I'm glad we're having you on here to sort of bring it back down to a community level. Uh, Thanks so much. Absolutely, and very happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Julia. So let's just kick it off with some background here on the organization Black Millennials for Flint. Can you tell us what it's all about? Yeah, so goodness, it's been about uh, four years now that we've been um, operating And similar to our name, um, we were founded in the wake of the Flint water crisis. Our founders were based in Washington, D.C. at the time, and we were actually members of um, some legacy civil rights organizations like the Urban League, as well as the NAACP. And so this is kind of taking us back to about 2015. And I would say that's when the public really became aware of what was happening in Flint, the very insidious nature as to how this water crisis came about. But we should keep in mind that the water crisis actually started in 2014 with a series of decisions that ultimately led to lead leaching from pipes into people's homes and drinking water. So we were, like many organizations as individuals, just trying to figure out a way to send resources to Flint. Um, So myself and our founder, president and CEO, Latricia Adams at the time, were again members of the Greater Washington Urban League. And we organized ourselves to send sanitation items and baby wipes and water. Because keep in mind, folks were, were not even able to shower necessarily very safely. There was a lot of uncertainty around exactly how people could be exposed to lead, what the health effects would be, varying levels of lead found in people's homes and in water. So people were having to go to um, other cities in order to shower for, for years, actually. And so at that time, we we were trying to, to juggle how we responded, um, you know, reactively, but we also recognized that lead is an issue across the country. Um, in D.C. alone, actually, what the Flint water crisis really showed us was that there was a need to test for lead in other areas, especially schools, because schools do not are not federally regulated. There's no mandate federally to actually test for lead in water in schools or child care centers. And so we were really galvanizing around this issue across the country and wanting to also link it to other social justice issues. I'll, I'll bring a little more context by just talking about Um, what was happening in Baltimore with Freddie Gray being killed um, brutally by police. What we learned about Freddie Gray and um, and, and weeks after that incident was that he was actually severely lead poisoned as a child. And so when you really think about just this legacy issue of lead and how insidious it is, especially in Black um, urban communities and brown urban communities, um, it's still a legacy issue that we have yet to address fully. And at that time, myself and Latricia, we really didn't see organizations, even admittedly like the Urban League and like the NAACP, really drawing attention to this issue. So that was what got us started, saying we need a new movement around this issue. And so Black Millennials for Flint is that movement. It's a grassroots civil rights organization that is essentially here with the mission to eradicate lead across the country lead has no place in our bodies. And um, because we're kind of a small organization, our work is based in D.C., Flint, Memphis, Tennessee, and Baltimore, Maryland for now. But again, our mission is to really address lead across the country. 
So you mentioned that organizations weren't paying enough attention to the water crisis in Flint, even some existing, you know, environmental justice uh, organizations. Do you feel like the Black Lives Matter movement has put a spotlight on this issue in a way that is is needed and finally resulting in action? Or is it still kind of in the realm of, okay, people are aware of it, but we're not yet seeing the action that we really need to see? So how would you think that the conversation has evolved this year? Yeah, it's 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 evolved in a way that um, I don't think it's been a linear sort of um, sort of instance in the sense that one way I think this is especially related to the Black Lives Matter movement is I mentioned Freddie Gray, but another issue that really galvanized another person, I should say, um, that galvanized us was Corinne Gaines, who was also a, um, a, a black woman from Baltimore who was tragically killed by the police. She herself was also lead poisoned severely as a child. And why I mentioned that is because what we do know about lead is it's a powerful neurotoxicant. We know that when you're exposed as a young child or as an infant, or even in your mother's womb, there's legacy exposure where women who are pregnant actually, the lead that's stored in their bones is released while they're pregnant. And so that's actually a way that the fetus might be exposed. So a young child, let's say, who's exposed to lead what that might mean for their um, for their outcomes as an adult is that they're suffering from issues like ADHD. They might be suffering from autism. They're likely suffering from some developmental delay that makes it more difficult to perform in schools. Um, one thing that we saw in Flint, for instance, was that unfortunately children were some of the canaries in the coal mine. Um, it wasn't until children were being tested and seeing abnormally high rates um, of, of lead levels in blood that we understood that there was truly an issue. And what that meant in reality for people, for parents especially, was that there were children, really young children in elementary school, who we were hearing stories of them being suspended 50 plus times in a school year. And then come to find out they were actually severely lead poisoned. Um, and so when you think about the type of care and the type of the, the type of care, especially that a child who's been lead poisoned might need, they certainly don't need to be kicked out of school 50 plus times in a school year. And so there's there's a real kind of connection to to the social justice movements around making sure people have adequate access to health care, making sure people have adequate access to being in a safe environment and not being overly policed because the police historically do not respond well to people who have mental health um, issues. And in fact, um, someone like Corinne Gaines suffered from a variety of mental health issues that some would actually link to her being poisoned as a child. And so there are names like that across this movement and we just this week, right, we're seeing protests in Philadelphia over, you know, the shooting of a man who was bipolar. And I don't know mm-hmm. the science. I want to be clear. I'm not sure that there's a direct link to lead there, but I think it's illustrative of the kind of thing you're talking about. Absolutely. And I think it's it does mean that we should take a deeper dive and look at the connection between these issues, because whether it's lead or other environmental pollutants, um, there is certainly a link, especially with our mental health and our just our developmental health, generally speaking. And so I think that is one way in which this movement is very much connected. And and believe me, I think there are are many other ways. I don't know how much time we have to talk about them all, but certainly um, there are ways we we should really be thinking about the environment and how it's connected, especially for the Black Lives Matter movement. And do you feel like leaders are hearing that? Are they making the connection now? 
I think they are. Um, often now we are talking about this topic of climate change and climate justice, and we're linking that as well to environmental justice. And so I hear more um, from our leaders, especially at least our, our public leaders in Congress, um, who are trying to tackle this issue. I, I know Cory Booker, Senator Booker, has introduced the Environmental Justice for All Act, um, as well as um, Congressman McEachin and Grohava. They have really championed this issue on the House side. Um, and even um, Senator Kamala Harris has also been looking at environmental justice issues and how to tackle them in the Senate. So I believe that we're at this sort of on the precipice, I would say, of being able to finally give full um, address and credit to a movement that has been going on for decades. People have been have been fighting against environmental injustices since well before I was born. Um, and I think it's finally getting some some more attention, um, much needed attention, especially from resource allocation, because at the end of the day, what people really need is resources to address these issues in their own community. And I'll just say my cat is also saying hello. I don't know if you all can hear her. But she <laughs> I heard a little meow. Called, she's on <laughs> my lap now, so I, I can't do much about her. <laughs> <laughs> that is fine. We're all working from home. Exactly. Um, yeah. So I hear you. So it feels like there's finally some, you know, real attention being paid. And more than that, there's actually some legislation that's being put out there. And I know on the attention side, I saw that you put out a video with Michael K. Williams, who joined you for uh, a tour around, I think it was Washington, D.C. or the Baltimore area. Yeah, Baltimore. Baltimore. And it's mm-hmm. it's stunning to see these pieces of paint literally like breaking up and peeling off the walls that sounds like are lead paint. Mm-hmm. How homes filled with love paint, and it's just stunning to see that that's just there in plain sight. Just seems really like a hazard. Oh, absolutely. Um, and so, what you're referring to was a um, initiative that BET, um, part of their sort of mini documentary on um, issues across the country, they actually highlighted environmental justice and looked at the lead paint crisis in Baltimore, it's actually the way in which it's the sort of number one way in which folks are exposed to lead is is still through lead paint and dust in homes. And we haven't used lead paint since the 70s. So this is really indicative of older homes, um, homes that have not been renovated and have not been cleaned up. Um, And so a lot of times you've even seen these in federal housing, which is really unfortunate because that federal money should actually clean up these homes. And many of them are also vacant. So what you've seen actually in that clip is us walking around vacant properties, properties that have known lead violations um, that the city has collected. And so what we were trying to do was talk to residents who might still live in some of these properties and find out if they actually knew um, what kind of hazards they might be living in or around. Um, Unfortunately, when you look at the paint inside of homes, there's also paint on the outside of homes. And so that lead dust can also spread um, into the soil, into surrounding homes. So even if you you, uh, mitigate it or remediate in your own home, if you're still surrounded by homes that haven't been updated, then you can still have a higher level of lead exposure. And so uh, Michael K. Williams was with us during that time. People might also remember him as a, um, as a cast member of The Wire, which was also based in Baltimore. So that was one of the major connections to this work. So let's talk about the election. We are now under a week away from the 2020 election. Of course, top of the ticket is front of mind for a lot of people, Joe Biden versus President Trump. But of course, the Senate is in play and there are local races that will have um, 
big implications for what happens to local environmental issues at the states and city levels. So I'm curious, how are you thinking about the 2020 election and what it means for the issues that you're working on? Well, it means everything for the issues that I'm working on. Um, in addition to being the chief advocacy officer for Black Millennials for Flint, I'm a staff scientist with the environmental law organization called Earth Justice. And um, many of the cases that we take on are against the Environmental Protection Agency. There are hundreds of them. And um, in particular, these past years, uh, there have been many of uh, many of our, our pieces of litigation are um, have really we've seen an uptick, if you will, because we've had to defend against rollbacks of critical environmental issues. Some that relate to the work that I'm doing with Black Millennials for Flint includes the lead copper rule, which is what actually failed in Flint. This is the rule that says how much lead is allowed to be in drinking water. Um, I'll say the caveat that we know lead is not safe. It's There's no safe level that's ever been identified for people to be exposed to, um, yet for feasibility reasons, as has been claimed, there's still a, a, an allowable amount. Um, that allowable amount was was very much exceeded in Flint, but it's also been exceeded in cities across the country. So it's a rule that is effectively not effective. It does not work in the way that it was intended. And this administration took it upon itself to update the rule um, in a way that is, is, is still not helpful. It does not go far enough to provide the protections that people need. So there are several issues that we would love to see a new administration come in and um, and undo some of the critical health protections and rollbacks that can be undone pretty much on day one of an administration coming in, but certainly within the first 100 days of a new administration. And then we would love to be able to, to work more proactively on issues that really need uh, some assistance at the local level. People often forget that um, federal agencies, not only do they serve um, you know, at, the, at a level nationally, but they also provide a lot of funding for um, local issues for, let's say, the health department and environmental health, um, environmental quality departments. And, and so what that really means is that if these agencies are not fully funded as they should be, they're not able to have that trickle down of monies that are available at the local level to do the important work for um, protecting people. And so that's something else that we're hoping to, to be able to address with the new administration. So this, this, this election is very consequential for us. So a big topic that we're covering on this podcast as part of a series we're doing called Relief, Rescue, Rebuild in the wake of the uh, COVID pandemic and, of course, the economic fallout that came along with that is looking at what a sustainable economic recovery could look like. This phrase means a lot of different things to a lot of different stakeholders. So I'm curious, from your perspective, what does a sustainable economic recovery mean? I think it's a very important thing to consider. I feel like for for the most part, when I think about the economy, I also think about how people are being impacted day to day, um, how they're able to live their their lives. Are they living their lives well? Um, as in, what is their well being? And when we think about COVID, for instance, how is that impacting their well being? Their ability to go to work, for instance, their ability to uh, to be able to take care of their family who may be impacted by COVID-19. And so I think one of the issues, especially when we think about folks who've lost um, areas that have lost businesses, 
and those who may be more sensitive to the effects of COVID, we have to look at some of the, the roots of those issues. For instance, um, we know that air pollution is a huge issue. It's connected to COVID. Unfortunately, I was on a call earlier with a partner um, who is living with not only um, issues related to COVID, actually her her city um, or census tract, I should say, is, is, is known to have the highest rates of COVID mortality in the country. And this is not an urban area. This is actually a fairly rural area, but this is because they have legacy issues of air pollution and existing conditions that make it ripe for succumbing, unfortunately, to COVID-19. So I think we need to be considering how do we make our environment more conducive and, and healthier for folks to be able to recover, um, not just from the fact that we're dealing with COVID, but from any issues related to climate change. Unfortunately, this is a person who is also living very close to um, where hurricanes have been pummeling, have been pummeling the, the coastline. This is down in Louisiana for months now. And, sh and this person is also um, likely going to be hit by tropical storm um, that's that's on its way called Zeta. And so it, it's there's sort of this, this conundrum that people are facing with trying to recover from COVID-19, but also for trying to address issues related to um, natural disasters that are still hitting people at this time. And so I think unless we're addressing each of these issues in tandem, and certainly the economy is a huge piece of that, um, we are we're going to still see that the effects from COVID-19 are going to are going to linger with us for years to come. And so I really do think that for areas that are, again, already facing um, issues related to climate change, that are facing issues related to pollution, those are the places we need to prioritize redevelopment. Those are the places that we need to prioritize resource allocation for any type of recovery that would be necessary. Do you know of an example of a program that has worked well? Do you have like a specific one where it's like, okay, the government created XYZ program and the result was, you know, lower lead and more jobs. Is there, an, is there a model you can pull from that, that worked on, again, a local level? Yeah, so there um, for years, EPA has had the Environmental um, Justice Office or Office of Environmental Justice, and they've provided EJ grants to um, mostly at the local level. And there are examples of community groups that have been able to take that money and do incredible work. One that actually comes to mind is actually in South Carolina. It's called Spartansburg, and it's a small community in South Carolina that was able to take this EPA grant and essentially exponentially grow that grant. And that allowed for, um, for them to install solar panels within the community to actually draw clean energy into the community. They were able to clean up hazardous sites that were located in the community. They were able to build housing for folks who needed um, updated housing. And um, it, it's, it's really, um, I would say, a pretty quintessential example of what happens when you allow people who really know the issues that are happening at the local level to do their own work, to figure out how to best allocate and address existing issues in their community. 
But unfortunately, those monies have dwindled in, in just the past couple of years, but certainly in years prior to this administration as well, because the agency has continued to get less money in its budget. Um, it's not been fully funded for, for over a decade at this point. And so I think that's one area where we would see some success, where it's it's not a matter of what what can the government come up with to solve an issue? It's how can the government actually assist people to figure out these solutions and provide, again, the resources to do so. Well, we're talking about some very serious issues, but at the same time, it is heartening to know that there may be a path forward. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to have been here today um, and to get to shed some light on these issues. That's the end of our final episode ahead of the 2020 election. Get out and vote if you haven't yet, and we'll be seeing you on the other side for some more analysis. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe to Political Climate if you haven't yet. We are still making donations to the American Red Cross for every new subscription that we get with proof of a screenshot. Just send us a screenshot showing that you've subscribed or followed wherever you like to listen. You can do that at poly underscore climate on Twitter. Just send us a direct message there or at poly underscore climate on Instagram. Or you can email us at politicalclimatepodcast at gmail.com. Again, just send us a screenshot of your subscription and we will make a $2 donation to the American Red Cross in your honor. That's it for now. I'm Julia Piper. Until next time.